At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, ladies, we are back with another Crime Estate episode today. So after last week, we decided we needed to light it up a little bit. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting story, and the house was fascinating. Mm -hmm. But it just was... It was a bummer. It was hard. Yeah. It was hard. So we're lightening up a little bit, and today I am bringing you a creepy ghost story from Greenwich Village in New York. Mm Because we know Alana loves her ghost stories. I do. Obsessed. Okay, but before we dive in, we got it. There's been a lot of like, well, there's been a lot of real estate news this week and a lot of true crime news this week. Mm -hmm. Interest rates hit a 20 year high. Mm -hmm. So we love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You said it so seriously. I was like, really? Really? We do? No, that's my uh, sarcasm. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Laid on thick. Although, you know what? I went. Um, I've been organizing my home office and of course I still have all the like paper documents from when we bought our very first house and our interest rate then 15 years ago was higher probably because we didn't have great credit. Like, yeah, but was higher then, than like most people are getting interest rates now. Yeah. That's why I wish people would just stop paying attention to all the hype, like turn the TV off, talk to your local real estate expert and really see what's going on in the market really. That makes a little sense because right now, you know, with school starting, you sort of, if you were actually going to be buying a home, you sort of have to be a committed person. Mm-hmm. Like I, I would imagine like, you know, if you have school-aged children, you're like, am I really wanting to go through all that mm-hmm. process of of moving or you know, selling my current home if, if I am right in the first two, three weeks of school? Well, and like, Elena and I have both been doing this a long time, like between us, what, like almost 30 years-ish? Probably, yeah. Um, but I feel like we always see this, like, mid-August after Labor Day lull. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. people are doing their final vacation of the summer. Their school's starting back. It's hotter than the surface of the sun outside. And then after Labor Day, it's fall, and you start thinking about, like, oh, you know, we said this was our goal this year. Better get on it, you know, so. Okay. Well, so, yeah, sense. so there's been real estate news this week. Um, you know, interest rates are what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been a lot of true crime news. Did yeah, y'all just, see that the Idaho murder case got like pushed back? Just briefly, what 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 happened? So I think, you know, just from my like quick reading, but I think that um his defense attorney just said like there's no way we can be adequately adequately prepared to defend him by sometime in September, whenever the original trial date was. So he waived his right to a speedy trial, which I mean, makes sense. Um, so they've pushed it back a little bit. So I guess we'll have to wait a little bit longer and see what happens then. And then also we didn't dig into it, but I think I heard that one of the other um, Murdoch people pled guilty this yeah, week, Corey right? Flan- Corey Fleming, um, which was one of his quote-unquote co-conspirators, not in the murder of his family, but in some of the financial crimes and the stealing from uh, all of the clients. Yeah, so I think he eventually uh, pled guilty just the, the other day, which makes me think with the Murdoch murder, in fact, they were actually trying to push the trial. That was sort of a strategy 
of the defense attorneys uh, to make it as quick and uh, as possible, as opposed to this Idaho one where they're kind of draw, uh, drawing it out mm-hmm. like farther. So there must be some strategy from a lawyer perspective of when you want to go fast, when you want to go slow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know enough about yeah. the legal system to know what that well, would if be. We know but... any criminal lawyers. Like, we, we know a lot of lawyers, but I don't know any criminal lawyers off the top of my head. I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> That's funny. It, it may also be the fact that the circles you run in, where your husband is a lawyer, and where you guys are realtors, so you know Maybe you know so. a, lot, a lot of people in the same fields. Yeah. That's probably true. I bet if you're like in the medical profession, then you know a lot of doctors and right. nurses. And okay, well, it's like when you get a car, and then you see everybody else with that car. I forgot. The There's same a, something that's called. No, something. that's a different phenomenon. It is a different. It's called something. Though. Yeah, it is. It's a known effect. Yeah, and I. I always like to talk about it, but I could never remember the actual <laughs> name of the effect. You're like, you know that thing with the thing? And yeah, but where you first hear about something or you see something. So like that car that you buy that you never noticed and now you're noticing it everywhere. Or I don't know, you want a new purse and you like start noticing everyone else mm-hmm. has that same brand. Can yeah. we introduce our guest? Oh, we definitely should. It's been a long time. So we're here with uh, Brantley Hightower, who Woo-hoo. is... Hello. Hi, Brantley. We're so glad you're here today. He is fixing all of our sound levels, and he is the magic behind the computer and the podcast, making us sound good every week. So thanks, Brantley. Anytime. All right. Well, okay. So let's dig in today's story. Melanie, I have to ask you, because I feel like you are our neighborhood expert of New York. Do you know anything about Greenwich Village? Like, is that a... I mean, it's a really nice neighborhood in Manhattan. I've walked through it many times, gone okay. to restaurants there. It's a little bit in lower Manhattan, so not the Upper East Side. So, um, you know. Okay, well, let me tell you what the Compass website okay. says yes. about Greenwich, because I was not familiar with the neighborhood. It says, the village is a beloved mix of the best that New York has to offer, including the iconic Washington Square Park. A diverse group of residents all contribute to the energy of this lively yet well-behaved slice of Manhattan. Does that mean exactly? I don't know, but I loved the description. Made me giggle a little. Described as the heart and soul of lower Manhattan, Greenwich Village is well-known for being the epicenter of counterculture and the hub of the neighborhood. Washington Square Park is well-known as a place for protest and civil activism. And I think that's sort of what I had in my Mm -hmm. head is like— protests. Yeah, I can see that. Now, in terms of real estate, the neighborhood is a mix of pre-war apartments and brownstones, and it's in one such revivalist Greek brownstone that our story is set today. Built in 1856 at 14 West 10th Street, the home is constructed of red brick with brownstone trim features and is four stories on top of an English basement. So I had to stop and look this up. Um, Are you all familiar with an English basement? Have you heard that term before? I haven't. No. Okay. So an English basement is a separate apartment that is half below ground and half above Hmm. ground. Okay. And according to my research, the first iterations of this design were sort of the result of like a structural necessity um, in order to support a building that was four stories tall and sort of narrow, you know, and also made of brick so it was heavy, builders would have to dig down and build some retaining walls into the earth. And so that space between the foundation and the first floor was used really as like a cellar or for storage. 
And I feel like that's a recurring theme that we see in our podcast are these like little cellars or storage rooms. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like under a... <laughs> yeah, right. Was right? the lady in the par- in the barrel, was she in New York? She was in Long Island. Yeah. Okay. Different okay. type of house. Yeah. But okay. yeah, I mean, we've seen a couple of right. those. The one in uh, France was that way too. Oh, right. Remember? Okay. Yes. Yes. And when I lived in D.C., um, in the actual heart of D.C., and definitely you see this in New York, you see a lot of these, I don't know, kind of basement apartments, but they're sort of quasi-basement apartments. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm kind of picturing. Like some exactly of them, what it is. Yeah. Like some of them are fully a basement apartment, mm-hmm. but some of them like... I. I never lived in one, but um, I when I was I went around with some realtors and looked at some when I was first moving to DC. And like part of the window would be above ground, okay. but part of it is not. If that so, makes sense. Okay. Yes. So here's the rest of the description, okay. Melanie. You're exactly right. So as this design evolved, the English basements were made slightly larger, and they would include a small window for natural light. Uh, along with a separate staircase yep. that went to a separate entrance. And so that made it easier for, like, the hired help yep. to access the property mm-hmm. without disturbing the homeowners or gave them a place for, like, live-in servants. And nowadays, those are really common to rent out. Absolutely. So, as a matter of fact, we have one of these units for rent linked on our website, crimestatepodcast.com. Um, okay, so you can get a feel for sort of exactly what we're talking about. This is an updated one-bedroom apartment, and it rents for thirty-four twenty-five Ooh. a month. Ooh, that's messed up. Yeah, Brantley, you just like looked at rentals in Dallas. How does that feel? A little pricey. Yeah, a little pricey. My range is slow. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and some of them that I've seen in the past actually are kind of nice because they have an outdoor area because sometimes in the back, if there's like kind of like a patio area. So my friend owned one um, in Boston and uh, it, and it was actually nice because it, in the back area, she had a lot of natural light that on the front you would not have expected. But yeah, most of them were kind of... Um, Subterranean. Yes. Okay, but back to the house itself. So brown t- brownstones are sometimes also referred to as either townhomes or row houses, depending on what part of the country you're in. And this style of home is typically made with brick and stone accents and features distinct windowsills, lintels, and front stoops that are also made out of stone. So um, just like our featured property, most brownstones are also three or four stories. And I thought this was really interesting. It says the front stoop is one of the main features of a New York City brownstone house that distinguishes it from others. So, of course, we're going to have pictures of iconic front stoops on our website and socials. But if you need a quick visual, think of the house in The Cosby Show. Um, Does that ring a bell? Can you picture that Mm -hmm. intro walking up those stone steps Mm -hmm. into their home? Okay. So that's what I'm visualizing when I'm talking about this house. And so... While really beautiful, these stoops were actually built for a function. They were intended to make the parlor or entrance floor much higher than the street level, which was at that time filled with horse excrement. Oh, wonderful. Of course. Yeah, so building these stoops helped keep the far- parlor floor clean. I really love, like, as we're digging into some of the history of how these homes were built, like, the functionality mm-hmm. of why they did a lot of what they did. Right. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. To sometimes, me. like, beautiful architecture is done for a reason, not just for yeah. pretty. It's like the combination of form mm-hmm. and function. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay. So, from 1856 to 1897, the house was home to the Borman Johnston family. They were a very wealthy family, and Mr. Johnston was the founder of the Metropolitan Underground Railroad. And he lived there until his death in 1887. 
Now, after his death, his widow moved their daughters into the home, and they lived there, presumably without incident, until 1897, when the home was purchased by, get this, cycling celebrity Fred H. Andrew. Cycling celebrity. I don't know. I Googled. I could not find any reference. I was like, maybe there's an article about He was some such a celebrity, but you can't. Nothing. I'm like, is he on a unicycle and he performs or was he a cyclist? Well, remember, you know, in the late uh, 19th century that uh, bicycles were just coming into being. And so it, they were very oh. cool. And so I, maybe he like was promoting the art of Bicycling? Okay, I really should have Googled this before. (laughs) You could have Googled it and found nothing because all I could find were stories on the notorious unlucky incident that sort of seems to have defined his life. According to a New York Times article from August of 1897, Andrew had a moment of, quote, reckless bicycle riding that caused him to hit eight-year-old William Murtha on Hudson Street. The boy suffered a broken leg, and Andrew was subsequently arrested. That's, I know it's awful, but it's kind of funny. Like, reckless, what do they say? Reckless, reckless bicycle, bicycle riding. riding. I got the impression that he was cycling under the influence. <gasps> okay, well, that makes but sense. But they didn't have, like, a term for that gotcha. at the time, right? But that's what it, like, reading stories, that's and, what and it sounded I, like. I mean, I really think that bicycles were so new back then. I mean, it was also, like, a big deal when women were allowed to ride bicycles because they were riding them astride versus in the past, you know, you rode side saddle mm-hmm. and horses. So I think there was, I mean, it was sort of controversial, that the whole concept. Hmm. Okay. So it's unclear to me if Mr. Andrew had to sell the house as a result of his incarceration. But by 1900, someone quite famous was leasing the property, author Mark Twain. Hmm. Oh. So, you know, I think Mark Twain, I just think like historic author. But by 1900, Mark Twain was sort of at the end of his writing career. He had written The Adventures of Huck Finn 15 years earlier And like many brilliant artists, was really struggling with depression. And on top of that, he was battling bankruptcy. Mm. It's really sad. Like, they weren't recognized in their time. I'm actually surprised because I think he was pretty famous in his time. Um, And he also had a whole bunch of books about traveling the world and and definitely very comedic in nature. But um, it doesn't mean you're making the money. Well, you know, definitely he st- still wasn't, you know, as um, probably as profitable as like his books are today. But one of the issues that he ran into was he had invested heavily in the page typesetting machine. And one report I read said he had invested $50,000 into the machine at one point and then eventually bought the bought out the rights to the machine, thinking that there were millions to be made with this printing press, for lack of a better word. But the linotype machine ended up cornering the market, and this investment almost bankrupted him. On top of that, his daughter died in 1896 at the age of 24 from spinal meningitis. Mm. So he had just had, like, a really rough couple of years. Do you know who's, like, a passionate typewriter enthusiast? Who? No. Like, somebody we know or somebody? Oh, no, somebody you've heard of. Steve Martin. Oh, uh, oh. He apparently, like, collects, like, every typewriter. Like, it's his, like, passionate collecting that he's got going on. So That's fascinating. In the show, Only Murders in the Building, doesn't he type on the typewriter? I, I, his, I'm pretty I sure so. so that he's done that, yeah. 
I don't know where I read this article about how he has like some of the biggest collection of dogs. Uh, he's an old man crush. So well, that's that why I brought it up. You, <laughs> your old man crush, I feel like that is sort of a, I don't know if that's a compliment or. He's an older man. Can I say, have a crush. speaking of crushes, I think we've talked about this before, but I love Matt Damon. Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting. I'm like, I he was has been my crush for years. Really? Years. Yeah. And I think I like that he's not like a normal, attractive looking like he doesn't have classically good looks, right? And he's a little rugged and he's good looking, but he's not pretty. Right. Yeah. Although he was a little prettier when he was younger. Yeah. Talk yeah. about aging. I mean, we just saw um Oppenheimer. Thank you, Melanie. He aged. I was like, wait, we're supposed to be the same age, Matt. And I'm not feeling that old. Well, wow. for the was it's like a true character. So maybe first off, he's actually like 10 years older than you. Oh. And oh, okay, that makes me feel and, and second off, I think that it he probably had some character makeup on. Too. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. what I'm gonna yeah. tell myself. Okay, so going back to Mark Twain, um, <laughs> here he is living in the Brownstone at 14 West 10th Street in 1900. And according to the website newyorkghost.com, which was a main source for this uh, this podcast today, Twain was a noted ghost skeptic. Yet he wrote of clear and plain paranormal experiences that he had in his new home. One evening, he witnessed a large piece of wood kindling move in the air all by itself. Thinking the wood was being moved by a rat that had some use for the wood, a new piece, piece of furniture perhaps, he shot it with his gun, as anyone would do. It suddenly fell to the ground surrounded by a few drops of blood. Now, at this time, rats outnumbered people in New York, even... Um, but the house was not noted for having a rat infestation. But Twain maintained that the blood was that of a rodent and not that of a ghost. Hmm. The wood was in the air, mm -hmm. and he thought a rat was moving it and shot it. Maybe a very tall rat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, but he's walking around the house with a with a gun, and he— Well, yeah, yeah. as one would do. <laughs> now, Mark Twain only lived in this house for a year, and he didn't die there— but it's said that his ghost haunts the house, often walking up and down the stairs. Ooh. Melanie is giving me like a skeptical look here. I'm sorry. He didn't die there. He lived there a year. I think that is a little wish fulfillment that you okay. have the ghost of uh, Mark Twain. Okay. Well, one resident in the 1930s claims that she saw Mark Twain's ghost sitting on a window seat. He walked toward her and her daughter and says, my name is Clemens, and I has a problem here. I got to settle. And then he disappeared into thin air. So remember, quick fact, Mark Twain's real name is Samuel Clemens. But ladies, that is not all. Sometime in the mid-1930s, the brownstone was converted into a series of 10 apartments with two units per floor. So fast forward to 1957 when Jan Bryant Bartell and her daughter move into the top floor apartment. Now, Jan's husband, Fred, was a restaurateur who was rarely home, and his work often caused him to work late and spend the weekends away. He also suffered from PTSD after serving in World War II, and Jan was considered to be a bit spoiled, neurotic, and also suffering from depression. In addition to all of that, Jan also possessed psychic abilities. I'm just waiting for the looks. No looks? Okay. And she claimed that upon moving into the home, she felt a, quote, a monstrous moving shadow 
would often follow her around the house. Okay. In other accounts, she said she saw a man standing in a hallway and reached out to try to touch him. According to her account, she described it as a, quote, a substance without substance, chilly, damp, diaphanous as marsh mist or a cloud of ether. I could feel my fingers freeze at the tips. They were numb, and yet they tingled. In the split second between contact and recoil, the scent came, fragile and languorous and sweet, unbearably cloyingly sweet. That's a beautiful passage. Isn't it? Yeah. I feel like people we were so much more descriptive. Looking at, like, Edgar Allan Poe here, I've feel like she was trying to write a horror story to describe it. Well, give me a minute, Melanie. (laughs) Foreshadowing a little bit here. All right. So apparently odd and unusual smells that they couldn't account for were fairly common at the home during this time. They would also find food, which they hadn't purchased, sitting and rotting on the counter. And their animals would randomly start behaving aggressively as if they could see an intruder. As you might imagine, this was distressing to Jan and her family, and she contacted Hans Holzer, who was a self-appointed psychic expert slash ghost hunter. And she wanted to have him figure out a way to get rid of the spirits in the house. Okay, so side note, this is the same guy Mm. who investigated the Amityville Horror House later in life. He's a big deal in the community. Yeah, he's he's like the guy to get. Celebrity. Yeah. Before they had uh, the shows on TV. Mm-hmm. So good old Hans investigates and tells Jan and her husband that there were upwards of 22 mm-hmm. spirits at the house of death. Okay. How often do you think he told somebody there were zero? Like, oh, no. Wow. There's no <laughs> no spirits here. Probably not very often. <laughs> Besides Mark Twain, he noted that there was a woman in a white dress, a young girl, and a gray cat. So Jan goes on to write a book about her experiences. There you go, Melanie. (laughs) At 14 West 10th Street, entitled Spindrift, Spray from a Psychic Sea. And a blurb from the jacket of the book reads, like a game of 10 little Indians, deaths began to occur in the house. The first to die was a dog, Jan's own beloved Penelope. But within 24 hours, she was to learn that the death of the first human tenant, whether by heart attack, suicide, or murder, the deaths came in rapid succession. In terror, with nine little Indians gone, the Bartels moved far away from Greenwich Village. But the haunting followed them. After the completion of Spindrift, Jan Bartell became the 10th. And in fact, she passed away very shortly after the manuscript for the book was completed. What do you think? I mean, I think something weird was going on in the house. No, Elena, I knew you were going <laughs> to love this. I knew you were going to love weird, it. Something weird. According to neighbors, ghostly happenings started spreading to neighboring houses, and residents at the apartment complex next door complained of flickering lights, and others reported seeing a female ghost in a long gown wandering around the hallway and floating in and out of doorways. They're jealous. Oh, they, they wanted a ghost, too. Yeah. yeah. I love it. <laughs> Now, despite all of his spooky history, the house probably wouldn't have maintained its, quote, house of death title if it weren't for the crime that occurred here in 1987. That's when we find Joel Steinberg and Hedda Nussbaum living in the brownstone. Now, Hedda works in publishing and Joel is an attorney. And let's remember that this is 1987 in New York City, which is really like the height of the cocaine epidemic. That's how I think like cocaine everywhere. When I think about the 80's in New York, I don't know if that's true, everywhere. (laughs) 
So after a night of heavy cocaine use, Joel hits their six-year-old daughter repeatedly knocking her unconscious. And Hedda, believing that Joel had some sort of spiritual healing abilities, didn't call for help until the next morning when their daughter stopped breathing. So when paramedics arrived, they found the six-year-old Lisa lying naked on the kitchen floor. Hedda, her mom, was covered in bruises and had several broken bones herself. And the youngest child in the family, Mitchell, who was, you know, toddlerish at the time, um, still in a playpen, was found tied to his playpen and soaked in his own urine. Oh, God. Hmm, that awful. The police also found marijuana, over 20 crack pipes, and $25,000 in cash. Now, oh, yes. So was this, I mean, I know that New York has gone through a lot of renaissances. And in the 80s, there was a lot of crime. But, I mean, Greenwich Village is a high-end property area. Was this high-end at that time or was it? I mean, my understanding was it was pretty high-end. I mean, you think Mm -hmm. he's an attorney. She has a great job. Okay, yeah. I think they were just living the high life with the cocaine. And he was one of those people that got really violent. No. So unfortunately, the paramedics were unable to revive Lisa and she passed away. And the police initially arrest both parents, but it becomes really obvious that Hedda is a victim of domestic violence. And, that she, and so she was just ultimately not charged in a crime, but not sold for Joel, who was convicted of first degree manslaughter and served 16 years in prison before he was paroled in 2004. That's wild that she wasn't charged with anything. Yeah. I mean, I think the 80s were also sort of the beginning of that domestic violence abuse. Like, I think people, I mean, Melanie, you're shaking your head at me, but. No, no, no. I'm just shaking my head at the sadness of the story. Yeah. yeah. It's supposed to be light this week. Well, it was until we got to the crime portion. I mean, yeah. I couldn't well, just okay. cover a ghost right. story. There had to be a crime, All too. Right. All right. So the New York Ghost website goes on to say that the house itself is still elegant, well-proportioned, and gives no clues as to the accumulated terror within. The classic brownstone near the beautiful Washington Square in Greenwich Village echoes with sad, frightening stories revolving around the many people who have left a part of their souls in the fabric of the building. If we are to take any lessons from these stories, it reinforces the old adage that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. I thought that was beautifully written. Mm -hmm. So currently in private ownership, the building is resided in today, and they continue to add stories about the hauntings to all of the old legends. And the stairwell continues to be the nexus of the ghostly activity in the building. So dark and wide antique stairs are where many of the ghosts still make their appearances. So ladies, pull out your pocket books. Would you buy this one? Would you rent this one? Would you list it? I would list it. I would not buy it or live in it. Mm-hmm. I felt like that would be Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think we... No, I mean... What made him do that? Like, what made him do something like that to his family? Coke. It was the cocaine. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I had a little more but influence still. than the haunting. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I don't. I don't hear a, a lot of truth to the story in the mm. sense of like I hear. Um, you know, somebody who wanted to write a book. I, I hear mm. tales like there's like kind of history rumor mill. But, um, and I hear a tragic death, but I don't necessarily hear lots and lots of like, 
oh, it absolutely, all these naysayers saw mm-hmm. the ghost. I feel like it was sort of maybe a popular legend. I could be completely wrong, but... Um, it feels like a good old legend to me, too. Yeah. That, you know, and then you add in that Mark Twain lived there, yeah. so you get that little bit of, like, yeah. intrigue. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then he only lived there a year, so it's like, oh, well, you can say he moved because of X, Y, and Z. I- I'm with you. I think it it is a story that has built on itself over the years, and now you probably see and hear what you expect to see and hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably a lot of it. Uh, Fun fact. Uh, is, so Greenwich Village is where a lot of Ghostbusters was filmed. Oh. And so the uh, fire station, that quintessential fire station, in, mm-hmm. is in Greenwich Village. I knew oh. you would have a fun fact She's about so good. She's full of fun facts. Yeah. Well, and weren't you telling us earlier that your sister did like a house ghost tour somewhere oh, in Texas? Oh, my sister-in-law. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So in Fort Worth of all places. So for her birthday recently, and we were out of town, so we couldn't go. And I'm very jealous. Uh, a friend of hers or a friend of a friend is started a kid you not a ghost tour company in downtown Fort Worth. And they actually bring in paranormal investigators, like real investigators to go along with them. And they have like these sensitivity, mm-hmm. these tools. And apparently they do a a prayer beforehand and a prayer at the end so that there's no unwanted attachment. Okay, I respect that. <laughs> I like that. I might would do something if that were occurring before and after. I might would do it. So, yeah. Um, there, she said it was very interesting. I think they all had fun T-shirts made up uh, oh, for that. Um, and, but she said they had no unwanted attachment that she could I mean, tell. What, you don't know. I mean, I don't know. One day it might just like pop up. I don't know. Alana, you crack me up. I mean, you so don't. Much. You just don't know. We talked about Ouija boards earlier, and I warned my son before: if you're ever at a friend's house and they pull out a Ouija board, call me immediately. Like you don't want to be around that. You were worried about I'm sorry, what? or alcohol. It, it was, was a Ouija, Ouija board. board. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm a hundred percent serious. Yes. You obviously did not live in my hometown growing up. I think there was not a slumber party to be had Uh that there was not a Ouija board uh, come out. I don't think— Seriously? There is no truth to it. It would be literally all of us, like one of us, like pushing it and doing, who do you like? Steven. (laughs) I mean, there— I, okay, I've done a lot of Ouija boarding in my oh, time, so, oh, and there has never <laughs> been <laughs> something. A lot of times there's like a discussion beforehand oh, where you're yeah. like, oh, let's trick so-and-so. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. See, I don't know. I've never even seen one. I've seen them on TV. I'm sorry. And yeah, I just, mm-mm. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed our little yes. uh, detour into something a little less serious yes. this week. Yeah, that and, was good. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing you next week. Yeah. Alana, do you know what? Do you have any teasers for us? I have some ideas. I really want to go back to New Orleans, but I feel like maybe I shouldn't, but there's so much in New Orleans. So I might go back to New Orleans. Okay. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll we'll find out next week. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's feature Crime Estate, you could find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimestatepodcast.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.